Hello and welcome to the JPRAS Journal Club in association with Plaster and Icoplast. Join us monthly to hear from the authors themselves about their article in the latest issue of JPRAS with critical appraisal and discussion from plastic surgery trainees and experts from around the world. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy this month's episode. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for this month's episode of the JPRAS Journal Club. I'm your host Demetrius Rhesus and I'm a plastic surgery registrar in London, UK and head of operations for our trainees association called Plasta. Today we'll be reviewing and appraising a new open access article in this month's issue of JPRAS entitled Predictors of Oncological Outcome in Patients with and Without Flap Reconstruction After Extremity and Truncal Soft Tissue Sarcomas. It is written by senior author Dr. Bjorn Baer and Dr. Mehan Dadras. We're honored to be joined by them both for discussion of their article today. Dr. Bjorn Baer is Associate Professor and Vice Chair of the Department of Plastic Surgery in the BG University Bergmannschale in Bochum, Germany. He is a true master of plastic surgery and has published extensively on soft tissue sarcoma, as well as other interesting topics, including tissue engineering and regenerative medicine following surgery and burns. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Baer, and we look forward to exploring your article in more detail. Thanks for having us. We're also honored to be joined by Dr. Mehan Dadras. He is also a consultant plastic and reconstructive surgeon in the Department of Plastic Surgery in the BG University Hospital Bergmannshall in Bochum, Germany. He also specializes in the management of soft tissue sarcoma and burns and is heavily involved in research in these areas too. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Dadras. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure. We're also honored to be joined by Dr. Anne O'Neill. She is an associate professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery at the University of Toronto in Canada. She has a specialist clinical and research interests in oncological reconstruction of the breast, extremities and head and neck following sarcoma and other forms of cancer. And we very much look forward to hearing her thoughts and learning from her expertise today. Thank you, Dr. O'Neill. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. And next, we are joined by Professor Andy Hart. He is the editor-in-chief of JPRES and a consultant hand and plastic and reconstructive surgeon specializing in brachial plexus and reconstructive microsurgery. He works in the Canisburn Plastic Surgery Unit in Glasgow, Scotland. And thank you for joining us again today, Professor Hart, and for making this journal club possible. No problem at all. It's a great pleasure. Also from JPRAS, we're joined by Ms. Karen Lindsay. She is a social media editor for JPRAS and a plastic surgery registrar working in Scotland. And again, has been a driving force behind this JPRAS journal club. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Tim. And from Icoplast, we're joined by Dr. Hine Rakhorst. He is a founding board member of Icoplast and Icobra and he's a specialist plastic and reconstructive microsurgeon working in the Medish Spectrum Hospital in Twente in the Netherlands. Thank you, Hene. Great to see this coming along. And last but not least, we are joined by Mr. Andrew Sanders, who will be leading the critical appraisal of the article today. He is a senior clinical fellow in the Canisburn Plastic Surgery Unit in Glasgow, Scotland, and he has a specialist interest in limb reconstruction, which makes him the perfect person to review today's article. So without further ado, Thank you very much, Andrew, for joining us today, and we look forward to hearing your summary and initial thoughts of the article. Thanks for having me. Go straight into a bit of a summary. Entitled Predictors of Oncological Outcome in Patients with and Without Flat Reconstruction After Extremity and Trunkal Soft Tissue Sarcomas. Sarcomas are obviously a very heterogeneous group of tumours arising from mesenchymal tissue, representing approximately 1% of adult malignancy, of which approximately 40% are in the extremities and 10% are on the trunk. They can often leave complex composite defects requiring a range of reconstructive tools. However, the data on oncological outcomes of patients specifically with flat reconstruction is limited. This paper has come out of the Department of Plastic Surgery at the BD University Hospital Bergenschel in uh, Bochum, Germany. 
which is a National Sarcoma Referral Centre. It's a retrospective observational study of patients who have undergone resection of an extremity or truncal soft tissue sarcoma from January 2000 to December 2015 and groups them into cohorts of either direct closure or flat reconstruction. They aim to compare the characteristics, oncological outcome and prognostic factors. Data was collected with a retrospective review of medical records or direct correspondence with patients or their family. Their primary endpoints were five-year local recurrence-free survival and five-year disease-free survival. Patients were identified from a review of medical records over the 16-year period that had undergone a truncular extremity soft tissue sarcoma excision with no metastatic disease at primary presentation. Other exclusion criteria included a presentation for recurrence, a skin graft reconstruction, or incomplete data. In total, they identified 1,052 patients, which were reduced to 781 after their exclusion criteria were applied. Of these, 581 patients had a direct closure, and 200 had flat reconstructions, ranging from local skin flaps to pedicle flaps to free flaps. Demographics between the two groups, including gender, age, obesity, ASA class, were all similar. Tumor characteristics for those treated with flat reconstructions tended to be smaller in size and volume, located in the distal extremities, and of a lower UICC stage compared to direct closures. In regards to the primary outcome of five-year survival rate, the closure method did not significantly impact the local recurrence-free survival of 71.5 compared to 68.9%, or disease-specific survival, 84.4 compared to 87.9%. In order to identify predictors which affected the five-year survival rates, univariate and multivariate analyses were done. We'll look through those in a little more detail uh, once we've started the appraisal. Thank you, Andrew. So we'll launch straight into the CASP questions then. For the first question, Andrew, did the study address a clearly focused issue? So the aims were clearly defined as a comparison between the two groups of direct closure or flat reconstruction with regard to the characteristics, outcome and prognostic factors. Uh, although this is a broad question in a quite a heterogeneous group of patients and pathologies, so not necessarily focused. Dr. Baer, Dr. Dadras, anything to add to that about how you designed the study, how you came up with your question when you were interrogating your data? Well, if I'd like to say, the problem with soft tissue sarcomas, as stated, is that it's a very rare group of heterogeneous uh, tumors. So we oftentimes have the problem in order to reach statistical power that we have to group together a broad range of different histopathological types. And this obviously is also the case in our study. But the patients were from a prospectively maintained database, and it's been a retrospective analysis of this data, which we prospectively try to adjust to newer follow-up dates. One thing to add, it's a large population, uh, at least for what we know, the largest in Germany, which uh, was published. And what is also worth mentioning is that in our unit, we're doing both the resection and the reconstruction. So this is also for the later discussions, this is important to take in mind. Um, there are many concepts where the surgeon who does the oncology and the plastic surgeon is doing the plaque. So in our cohort, uh, this was all 
performed by the same team. Uh, Andrew, the next CASP question for you is, was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? I think we've actually just had that clarified a little better. Um, so it wasn't quite clear that it was a prospectively collected database. So I think that that certainly adds some validity to, to the retrospective nature of the paper. It obviously still relies on the accuracy of these records, but a prospectively maintained database is certainly helpful. Uh, was the exposure accurately measured to minimise bias? Yeah, so the exposure was essentially either the closure method of either direct closure or flat reconstruction. And that, I think, should have been fairly obvious from the medical records in, in the database. But yes, it's, it's not fully clear on how or why a reconstruction method was chosen for a specific patient and whether their practice changed over that 16-year period as well. So I think that would be interesting to find out. Dr. Baer, Dr. Dadras, um, how do you think that decision-making process, did it change at all over that 16 years? Or, and if it did, how, how has that impacted the results of the study? Well, uh, we're an academic institution, but there is a, quite a turnover in attendings that go somewhere else, and so which is good and bad. You know, Basically, your comment is absolutely true. It's, it's very simple. If you can't get the primary closure, you, you need to put some sort of regional or local distant flat. And when you look at the data a little bit more closely, the majority uh, where we need the flaps were the distal uh, tumors. So ankle, foot covers the classical uh, parts where in sarcoma surgery where you need the flap, whereas in the thigh, where there's a lot of soft tissue, uh, you rarely need a flap, at least in our patient. Yeah. Uh, well, what I think in terms of learning curve or changes over the time, I think every reconstructive center over the past 20 years has become more proficient in reconstructive microsurgery and the threshold to perform free flap surgery has been lowered. So I think we can also see that in our department where we tend to more easily choose a free flap reconstruction if we are in doubt than 20 years ago. And also what might have changed is the, the a choice of flaps that have been moved more to perforator flaps instead of going for bulky muscle flaps on all the cases, although there's still a need for it and, and depending on the case. But this is nothing that we have looked at in detail if it has any impact on the results of this study. Thank you. Um, Dr. O'Neill, do you have any observations at this point about the questions we've asked so far? I think it's interesting the model of uh, care that you have where the same service is performing the resection of the tumour and also the reconstruction. I guess you could think that that may influence your outcome in, in a number of ways, either positively or negatively. If you're the person doing the resection, maybe you're less conservative with your resection margins because you know you're going to be able to cover the defect, or maybe you're more conservative. If you think this is now my problem rather than our surgeons here who just call someone else in to deal with it. But uh, I think it would be interesting to compare those uh, margins with achieving negative margins with a different model of care. I did wonder if um, in your patient selection, do you always have a plan from the beginning? It didn't uh, specify that or if there's ever, I mean, the fact that you do the resection and the reconstruction yourself allows you a lot more freedom to uh, change your plan intraoperatively. Do you find that you have to do that frequently? Include a flap when you didn't plan one in advance? Not necessarily. We all know there are certain um, sarcoma like dermatofibrosarcoma protuberance or angiosarcoma where it's hard to distinguish the margins preoperatively. But in general, I would say, let's say 90, 95% is pretty much straightforward. So we look at the MRI, do the clinical examination, see 
whether we might need a flag and uh, usually the plan uh, works out. Also, interesting point you raised regarding the margins. As we might discuss later, we performed some studies addressing the margin status and our department has uh, historically been trying to maximize limb-preserving limits of oncologically correct sarcoma surgery. We uh, always aim for negative margins, but we are not planning to do wide, very wide margins because we know we can close the defect because our data has shown that we don't see any survival benefits extending more than negative margin to, say, two centimeters of healthy tissue. So in our experience and our data, what we concluded and is now our practice is that we aim for negative margins, but we don't aim for a very wide, healthy tissue margin, which would, uh, especially in the distal extremities, uh, imposes great restriction to functionality and limb preservation. Great. So we'll move on to the next CASP question, which is, was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Yeah, there's sort of limited information on the data collection in the paper itself. It reports that data collection it was performed from retrospective review of medical notes and also correspondence with patients or patients' family. Uh, so in terms of accuracy of survival, um, I think you'd expect that that's a fairly straightforward outcome to measure, but perhaps some of the other data that's been collated it would be interesting to hear the author's thought on the accuracy of it. As I said, we had a prospectively maintained database. This, this includes tumor stage and all the relevant tumor data. And then we have most patients in a follow-up that come to our hospital or have the data sent to us. So we have a follow-up protocol that goes for an MRI of the local tumor site every three months with contrast and also a CT scan of the thorax initially and then regular x-rays of the thorax every three months. So we have these regular follow-up data prospectively. What we didn't put in the database prospectively was, for example, wound complications, which was also measured in our study. So this was something that we had to retrieve retrospectively from the data, from the medical records. The most important oncological data were prospectively maintained. Regarding the contact with the family members, this was performed in patients where the longest follow-up was more than two years ago. So these patients, we, of course, after ethical board approval of the study, we contacted the family and or the patients themselves if, the, if they were alive to have a newer follow-up. So this was done additionally to improve the follow-up. Andrew, the next cast question is, have the authors identified all important confounding factors? They've identified a really great range of significant factors which might influence or potential confounders on local recurrence-free survival and disease-specific survival in their groups. I think they've done a good job of that. And to carry on, I mean, they've done a large amount of analysis of those predictors as well in terms of both univariate and multivariate analysis to try and find specific risk factors Again, I guess the only confound which is always going to be hard to define is how the patients ended up in each group. The next questions are about the follow-up. So was it um, complete and long enough? Yeah, the median follow-up is reported as 71 months, so almost six years, and I think that seems you know, perfectly adequate for a five-year survival rate. So, so yes. And then the next question, you've covered some of that already in the, the lovely summary you gave us at the start, but um, can you just run through again some of the pertinent results of the study. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a lot of a lot of data analysis in the study done, uh, in particular looking at the risk factors. Uh, there's, there's a few more specific things I guess I've taken out of it which I'd like to share. So I've mentioned the demographic and the gender characteristic factors already. To mention the surgical specific factors that they've found in terms of differences between direct closure 
Uh, direct closure resulted in shorter operative times, which would be probably expected, of 105 compared to 130 minutes, so not significantly different, uh, and a shorter length of hospital stay by three days, 11 compared to 14 days in the flat closure group. In regards to histological margin status, which we've briefly touched on, but um, their results are nicely presented, so they have clear margins of 94.5% in both groups. 5.5% positive margin rate, and interestingly they mentioned that all the macroscopically positive margins were in the direct closure group, with only microscopically positive margins in the flat group. This has again, interestingly, been somewhat covered by some discussion already, but um, I noted that three quarters of their clear surgical margins were only marginal, as in less than one centimetre, uh, rather than wide, but I think we've had a really nice explanation of that, the unit's experience with their tumour excision margins. There was no statistically significant difference in wound or overall complications. And also note that very few had had neoadjuvant radiotherapy, so only 3.5% in total, and only uh, just over a third had had adjuvant radiotherapy, 37% in total. In terms of the five-year survival rates, as mentioned before, they didn't significantly differ for local recurrence-free survival or disease-specific survival between the two groups. Regarding the predictors for local recurrence-free survival on univariate and multivariate analysis, uh, the things that were predictive against uh, local recurrence-free survival was an ASA class of three, a high-grade tumour, angiosarcoma or their other subtype, and involved surgical margins as probably expected. Things that were predictive for local recurrence-free survival uh, were a liposarcoma subtype and adjuvant radiotherapy. In terms of disease-specific survival, the multivariate analysis showed a worse disease-specific survival for a truncal location, tumours larger than 5 centimetre, a grade 3 tumour, or involved surgical margins, and a better disease-specific survival, again, for liposarcoma or adjuvant radiotherapy. Those are the main features out of a, a, a very large data set with a lot of analysis that I've taken away from it. Uh, Dr. Baer, Dr. Dajas, any other key points that uh, you feel that should be highlighted differently or that you want to discuss in the session? I think it pretty much sums up our main key points. One result that we mentioned, which was following the interesting findings of Dr. O'Neill from Toronto regarding the mitigating effect of lab closure for neoadjuvant radiotherapy. We also analyzed in our cohort which was strongly limited by a very small amount of patients receiving neoadjuvant radiotherapy, which we already heard of only 3.5%. Because it's in our current clinical practice, we rather do it adjuvant, which is a the large difference to the to the group of Dr. O'Neill, and which makes her work very interesting, in which she shows that uh, it's not a risk factor for wound complications in the FLAP group. And we can see it also in our data, but as I said, limited by the low numbers. Um, yeah, uh, in, in Toronto, our standard of care is for patients to receive uh, neoadjuvant chemo or radiotherapy. I'm sure anyone with an interest in sarcoma knows that the Toronto Sarcoma Group are very much to the fore of advocating for um, radiation prior to the tumor ablation. Um, 
this uh, certainly predates my working here, so I have, have no input into that. Um, the rationale for it is that if you deliver the radiation prior to the resection, that you can deliver a more discrete dose of radiation to the tumour itself, rather than radiating the entire bed. And that can help in the long term by limiting the uh, field of radiation and the associated fibrosis and functional impact of that. Um, but for us, it means that approximately 75% of our patient cohort in Toronto have received neoadjuvant uh, radiation, and we perform the resection approximately six weeks post. About 85% of our free flap cases have been previously radiated, so we're anastomosing in a field of fresh radiation. It's our standard, so we're used to it, and we have, um, I guess, um, caveats in our care that account for that. But Yes, it definitely would make it, for instance, difficult to compare between units when one unit has a very high rate of, uh, of preoperative radiation. Thank you. So how precise are the results, Andrew? I mean, the accuracy, it comes down to the completeness of the data set. And I think we've talked a little bit about that in terms of the retrospective nature of some of the, the features uh, and it being over a fairly long time period. But the survival data that's been presented in terms of recurrence-free survival, metastasis-free survival, disease-specific survival, they're all similar to previously reported data sets. I think that, that probably seems fairly reliable. And that follows on nicely into the next bit of, do you believe the results? <laughs> yeah, I think, that, I think the survival rates are certainly believable. In terms of the predictors, we've probably talked about that. Yeah. So how applicable do you think the results are to the local population? I think that's where it gets a little tricky because there's obviously different practices for sarcoma units all around the world. Um, ultimately, sarcoma management must be individualised to both the patient factors, the disease-specific pathology factors, but also the clinical expertise within a unit, and they all need to come together to provide appropriate management for the best outcome. So I think there's some really useful points within the paper to help guide us, for example, that the survival rates uh, are not affected by a flat reconstruction, the complication rates seem to be comparable, uh, it highlights the importance of achieving adequate surgical margins, and also that flat reconstruction seems to predict preventive against wound complications in the setting of neogenic radiotherapy as has been previously published by Toronto. Thank you. And I think that kind of answers the next question, which is, do the results of this study fit with the other available evidence that we've discussed throughout this uh, review? So what are the implications of this study for further practice, Andrew? Well, I think hopefully we'll discuss that a little more over the next session in the, uh, in the journal club, but hopefully techniques can continue to involve with the focus on final functional and aesthetic outcomes. And just always to remember that sarcoma surgery has to first be about the oncological outcome and the reconstruction should be tailored to the oncological margins rather than vice versa. Great, thank you. Uh, Andrew, that was a really wonderful, succinct, snappy run through the CASP guidance So, and their questions. So thank you very much for that. Uh, I'll hand it back to Demi to hand over to Hine. Thanks, Karen. And thanks, Andrew. That was a great overview of the paper. And we've touched on a lot of the important points already. Um, and I'll just hand over to Hine now to focus a bit more on the clinical impact and um, discuss further with the authors and also, also with Dr. O'Neill and Prof Hart as well from the journal point of view as well. Thank you, Demi. And uh, first of all, I want to congratulate the German team with this magnificent paper. It's such large numbers and it's great to share your knowledge and experience with the world to provide us with more direction and also with the whole faculty. And the question I would like to ask to, to Bjorn and also to Anne. First of all, when you look at uh, adjuvant 
therapy. There's obviously radiation therapy that we've been discussing. And the question of Marin Sitkas from the Amsterdam Cancer Institute would be, how does uh, isolated limb perfusion change your reconstructive practice? We hear thoughts about not doing free flaps and isolated limb perfusion limbs. And what is your experience? I have no experience with doing free flaps in patients who have had isolated limb perfusion. It's not something that is commonly used at all in the Toronto Sarcoma Group. So no experience. Björn? So we use it maybe once or twice a year on very selected cases where we fear in distal extremities, where we fear that the sarcoma is in close vicinity to an important uh, structure like the tibial nerve, for instance. And we, we ask the people in Essen, which is close by, to, to look at uh, the MRI, whether they see the potential to decrease the tumor size. So again, with very limited number and experience, what it does, it, it gives you some form of necrosis around the outer shell. It's not easier to operate. Tissue is uh, somehow edematous, or it, it's uh, hard to describe. It's a very on an individual basis. We, we have performed free flaps after isolated extremity perfusion. It's, it's, uh, it's very, very few cases, and I think the vessel's quality is worse, and it's harder to perform anastomosis, uh, obviously after chemotherapy has run through the, through the vessel and damaged intimal tissue. But uh, I cannot give any quantitative data, but I know that we have performed free flaps successfully, but we have struggled to do so. So... It essentially, part of the push I've always had in microsurgery, and, and we've got a big sarcoma practice here as well, as well as limb reconstruction, is, is really trying to get beyond the idea of flaps being, you know, being pleased when they're a success. Uh, you know, we should be well beyond that now. And another point we'll hopefully come back to later on is, is what flap you use and whether that's got any implication on survival, local recurrence, anything else. Because if it doesn't, then you've got your whole armamentarium there, and to some extent, the question about whether you use a free flap or not then becomes, if not invalid, but it just comes down to what's the safest thing for that wound. And if a local flap's going to do as good a job as a free flap, it's always going to be safer. And now that we've got elegant local flaps, they can take over a lot more of the burden. So you're maybe pushing more towards a free flap being a necessity, and therefore, you know, if you have to do it, you'll do it. It takes away some of that choice. Well, we agree that obviously the, it doesn't have any impact on the outcome in terms of oncology and that we want to solve the problem with the least complication rate as fast as possible. And if a local flap is an option that we can use, obviously we try to use a local flap. But we all know that there are cases where we don't have any local options and then there we still go for the free flaps. But it's not that we are advocating to use free flaps wherever possible. That's certainly not our intention. No, no, no. So what is your algorithm in for your upper leg and then for your lower leg? Do you have any thoughts on when you pivot from uh, from primary closure? What's the role of skin grafting and then going to pedicle flaps and then free flaps? And what is your uh, flap of choice? And let's start with ladies first, Anne. 
well, again, I harp on about it all the time, but our radiation is, uh, <laughs> it influences strongly what we do. We use very few uh, local flaps because our adjacent tissues are heavily radiated in a short period of time before the surgery. So very little local flap. I mean, obviously, if we have a pedicle flap option, we will use that and then free flap. Um, usually the, the free flap options are limited by the size of the defect. So we find that you use a lot of uh, ALT flaps and a lot of, uh, I use a lot of free lat dorsi flaps because uh, sometimes we simultaneously and we're not 100% sure what the size of the defect is and a, a lat dorsi it's a standard size you don't have to really plan beforehand but a lot of the time you find you're just trying to pick the biggest flap that you have available to you and, and it often just boils down to either a free lat or a free ALT. We have probably uh, less experience using local flaps or um, perforator propeller flaps. Um, it's it's difficult to uh, find perforators that have not been compromised by the uh, field of radiation. And do you ever do reinnovation of the of the lat dorsi or do a functional muscle transfer? Sometimes, but um, not not very frequently. Okay, let's go to Germany. What's your thoughts on on dealing with these defects? Well, in the trunk, we usually work with local flaps. It might be a propeller flap, but also the classical workhorses like lat dorsi or DRAM, uh, which could also be used for the lower leg if you have to cover something uh, adjacent to the femoral artery or vein. And then the standard flap for both the upper or lower extremity free flaps is the ALT. Why? Because I'm relatively flexible uh, in terms of size uh, and I have a really nice and long pedicle. Andy, what's your thought? How does the bridge do this? Yeah, I, I think the two approaches here kind of encapsulate it. So, for example, in, in Glasgow, we had a, a relatively sudden change from almost never having new adjuvant to very frequently having new adjuvant. And prior to that change been shifting very much more from free flaps to propeller perforator flaps and they were brilliant. But the only major complication I've ever had with one of those is a patient who had neoadjuvant radiotherapy. If you're transferring heavily radiated tissue, it's always going to be more of a risk. So now that, that's a major factor in our choice of reconstruction. The local flaps we use a lot in the lower limb, the perforator ones. In the upper limb, it's the same range that you were talking about there, Bjorn. And we try and push much more towards functionalization. Uh, Stephen Lowe does most of the lower limb ones. He's very keen on knee reanimation. And in the upper limb, we're trying to reanimate the shoulder or the elbow. Does is, is anybody have any thoughts? Because sometimes you get the, these huge resections that might have some functional impacts to the lower limb. When to do tendon transfers, or can anybody elaborate on this? Uh, moving tendons around, or, or muscles even? Or when you stop reconstructing and, and start amputating? Uh, for those sarcoma where we have to take care of the tibialis anterior part, we do this technique where you pull the tibialis posterior tendon through and reconnect it to the uh, distal uh, tibialis anterior and also reroutes the perineus longus, like horseshoe uh, tendon transfer. And then there's another one we call the Gocht tendon transfer, uh, which is used if you lose most of your quadriceps and then you have to reroute part of the biceps femoris on the one part and part of the semitendinosus on the other part to reconnect it to the patella to get some extension of the knee again. It's actually a one, in my view, one of the most interesting parts in uh, sarcoma reconstructive surgery 
to plan the tendon reconstruction and to really uh, make an impact on gait and everything of, of the patient. Then in certain instances, we do all together, like we do the tendon transfer and then put a pre-play on top of it and then I hope that it all works. The same applies if we have to uh, resect the radial nerve. We try, if it's, if it's a safe resection where we are pretty sure that if we are in healthy tissue, we also do the tendon transfers right away to reconstruct the loss of function that we have there. So if I understand you correctly, so when the nerve is cut, then you do a functional tendon transfers. Is there any limit to the amount of muscle you can take from a compartment? Clinical intraoperative decision. Usually, I don't know uh, how the sarcoma pre uh, patients present in your departments. We feel that they present late, so they're pretty advanced. And uh, usually, if you look at the MRI, the anterior compartment is already total sarcoma and you already know beforehand or you have to tell the patient well we have to take care if the sarcoma goes out you will have a foot that is dropping and we need to take care of it, of it in the same time so usually it's relatively evident beforehand in, in our patient collective we also have the experience you can resect a lot of quadriceps before patients okay. get issues in the extension of the knee we feel that the vastus medialis is probably one of the most important parts of this muscle which Probably, if it uh, remains untouched, you will probably have enough function. But if in doubt, we, we, we let the patient wake up, we let him have physiotherapy and see how he recovers and then eventually go back in the second operation and then do the reconstruction if we see that, see that he has, has problems. We don't always do it single stage. And you have the final comment, I suppose. Yeah, I think the approach here would be very similar to uh, Bjorn's. We, they would normally know in advance. Um, the ablation is performed by uh, orthopedic oncologists in our center. And so if there is reconstruction for the lower limb, they're the ones who perform it. But they would generally know in advance uh, that that was planned. I would also um, agree that they can take a huge amount of muscle out of the leg without having a, a funk. That's certainly their, uh, their approach that they don't believe that in uh, the proximal leg that it makes that much of a difference functionally to um, restore in most cases because you can take a huge volume of the muscle away and it doesn't seem to impact the patients. If for the upper limb, we would usually involve, we have a separate hand surgery group and they would also... Um, perform immediate tendon transfers uh, in selected cases and that would be planned in advance. Andy? Yeah, very, very similar. We're, in general, we're really keen on primary functional reanimation. My colleague has got the lower limb interest and he's got beautiful functional gait studies, dynamic response studies on different patterns of quadriceps loss and the different reconstructions. But, but similar to what you say, you, you can lose a considerable amount, but when it's needed, it makes a fast difference to the dynamic response. And then the upper limb, just the same really, if, if we can predictably do safe tendon transfers or nerve transfers at the time of reconstruction we'll do that if we're concerned about tumor issues or healing issues we'll defer it and then there's some patient factors on top of that thank you i'll hand back to dimmy thank you Hine, and thank you everyone that's been a great discussion it's been really interesting to see the different and similarities but both differences as well between the units and the management of these patients and as we said it's a very heterogeneous group but the practice is similar in some ways and different in others and that's great to explore. I just thought I'd ask Prof Hart one more question just from the journal's point of view with regards to this paper. It's one of the open access um, articles for this month's issue of JPRAS and what is it from your point of view and from JPRAS point of view that make this article stand out um, and is firstly beneficial for the readership of JPRAS but also something that people looking to send their research to JPRAS might look to emulate and 
reflect in their own work as well. I think we've probably covered most of the reasons. You know, it's it's a very big data set. You can have some reasonable arguments about whether prospective collation should be done, you know, building a data set and then looking back at it or whether you have to look at it with all the parameters defined before. But it's still a very big data set from a very good centre and that's what people want to see. Um, beyond that, in choosing an editor's choice paper, there's always a little bit of personal choice and I'm really interested in sarcoma and limb reconstruction. So it's nice to be able to push that work through the journal and really, I guess, carry on building the case for reconstruction as an essential part of sarcoma services. Many centres have that in place already and we can get a bit blasé about our role in that, but there's still a lot of centres around the world where reconstruction is seen as a little bit of a Cinderella part of it, but it's not. You can see the data there. It's absolutely part of enabling adequate resection, which enables cure and reduce local recurrence, and it enables healing with radiotherapy, whether it's new adjuvant or adjuvant. So highlights a big, big area of work for us. It reinforces our place in a key care path, and it reflects a big volume of work by a very good centre. Thank you so much. In comparison with other work going on in the BAPRAS webinar focusing on sarcoma as well, I think a lot of people can really generate their interest um, in sarcoma and take it forward in their own clinical practice. And with that in mind, I'd like to ask Dr. O'Neill firstly, and then the authors, um, is there a specific paper that you'd recommend for trainees um, looking to get involved in sarcoma clinically and both from a research point of view that's affected your practice and that you would recommend for them to study as well? Um, so I picked two papers. I'm just going to um, mention them very briefly. The first one, it's not really something that influences my practice. It's a paper that's referred to quite a bit in this paper, um, a paper from our own centre um, where we looked very specifically at the factors that influence uh, complication rate in sarcoma surgery, either with or without reconstruction. And uh, the reason I picked that is that I think it's a good companion paper to the current paper because it highlights the importance of considering patients who have flap reconstruction as a separate population, because I think that in sarcoma research, we we cannot make progress in understanding the clinical outcome of patients who have flap reconstruction and how we can optimize those outcomes if we don't consider those patients separately from the uh, big heterogeneous group of sarcoma patients in general. Um, so that's a paper from the uh, European Journal of Surgical Oncology in 2017, written by a, um, a PhD student of ours called uh, Yelena Slump, and it looks at 900 patients, um, a similar breakdown with the flap and non-flap and importantly it shows that um, the risk factors for complications are very different in patients who have a flap versus those who don't have a flap. The second paper um, is kind of uh, relevant to this, this current paper and um, I guess because when I read this paper I think that the impact of uh, flap reconstruction on oncological outcomes is really only relevant in cases where you think the soft tissue coverage is the limiting factor in achieving a negative margin or an optimal margin. And I think that in many cases, that is not the limiting factor. We can pretty much put a big free flap on just about anything to cover the soft tissue defect. And um, even if we have to use two flaps, we, it can still be covered. But I think the limiting factor is the proximity of your tumor to vital structures. And I think that one thing that this paper doesn't address is what happens in scenarios where you have a planned close margin or even a planned positive margin because you've decided that you want to maintain function. 
Um, and I guess that's achieving your balance between your oncological outcome and your functional recovery post-operatively. And that's a decision that has to be made in a personalized way based on the tumor subtype, what the grade of the tumor, what the expectations of the patient are. It was a paper, it's also from our center, but from the um, oncology side. And they looked at cases where you deliberately have a negative margin to um, preserve a structure and the impact that that has on local recurrence-free survival. And in some cases, it can have very little impact in terms of the long-term local recurrence rates. It's a paper by uh, O'Donnell et al. and it was uh, published in Cancer in 2014. I think this is a very interesting paper about that decision-making process. Thank you very much. Yes, definitely. And we'll um, definitely share the links of both those papers along with the podcast for everyone to download. And Dr. Baird, do you have an article you'd like to recommend as well? Yes. So it's from my valued colleague, uh, Kamran Arati, and our chair, Markus Lehnhardt. We looked at um, positive and negative margins and uh, resection width. So what they found, it's published in The Oncologist in 2017, that uh, surgical margins can be closed as long as the resected tumor has no ink on it. So basically what it says, you can go down to below one millimeter. Uh, you just have to have your negative margins. And why is that important? It reassured the practice that if you are or if you operate on a structure like a tibial nerve, as long as you have negative margins, there's no outcome change in local free, uh, recurrence-free survival, in disease-specific survival and metastasis-free survival in our study populations, which is 640 patients, uh, but again, heterogeneous uh, sarcoma group. We put all the subtypes uh, together. That's a, a limitation, but still um, was quite reassuring. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting paper and a practice-changing paper as well, so that's very important. Thank you very much. And Dr. Dadras, is there a paper that you'd recommend for our readership as well? Well, I chose, in fact, a really classical paper, which is from 1999 from uh, Sloan Kettering. And it's from Billingsley, and Muriel Brennan is the senior author. And it's called Pulmonary Metastasis from Soft Tissue Sarcoma Analysis of Patterns of Diseases and Post-Metastasis Survival. And this is more from the resection or the oncological standpoint. It has changed the practice also from the studies that came after in, in a way that we sort of saw this changed our practice and also the practice of most sarcoma centers in the way that from a surgical standpoint, working together with cardiothoracic surgeons, addressing all visible tumors uh, manifestations as long as they are resectable. And we believe that as long as it's from the morbidity uh, okay for the patients, we are still working towards helping the patient in achieving good long-term results, which practically means that we perform CT scans obviously before every uh, resection of the primary tumor and then consider doing the resection in a staged setup or even in some cases we do them in one operation where the cardiovascular surgeon goes for the metastasis and we operate the primary tumor. Thank you. Another great paper. And we'll make all four of those available alongside the podcast um, so that everyone can read those along with um, the article that we've discussed today. I think it's been a really interesting and thorough discussion of the paper. And we've covered a lot of important points and also been able to compare practice between units, which is um, unique and really interesting as well. So thank you so much to both the authors and all of our panelists today for being part of this. Thank you so much again, everyone, for listening and for taking part today. Thank you very much, Mr. Andrew Sanders. Your great critical appraisal of the paper. Pleasure, thank you. Thank you again to Mr. Hine Rakhorst. Thumbs up there. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Miss Karen Lindsay. 
No problem. Thank you, Lumi. Thank you to Prof Andy Hart. Thanks very much. No problem. Thank you also to Dr. Anne O'Neill. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you also, Dr. Mehan Dadras. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, last but not least, to Dr. Bjorn Baer. Thanks, Marvin. Thank you for writing the paper and for discussing it so openly today in the Journal Club. We really appreciate it. And a lot of learning points for everyone listening. So it's been a great discussion. So thank you very much, everyone. It's been a great JPRES Journal Club. And we look forward to seeing you next month for another issue. Thank you for listening to this month's JPRES Journal Club. Please send your thoughts and further questions to us on social media using the hashtag JPRESJournalClub. The article discussed today is freely available at jpressurge.com with special thanks to the JPRES editorial team and our guest author for making this possible. You can also find out more about Plaster and Icoplast on social media and our websites which are plaster.org and icoplast.org. We look forward to hearing from you and see you next month for another episode of JPRES Journal Club. Thank you.